This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. You made it. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of this place where the kids aren't asking for the Wi-Fi. Mom, can we go to the pool? And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Yo Barone. Oh yeah! And on this episode I'm talking to Mike Faraher from New Jersey. New Jersey. He's a playwright, he's an author and writer of a series called McLean Avenue. We met up in the Crown Plaza just at the airport there on his flying visit to Ireland. So, uh, what was I talking, what was I at last week? I was down in Listowel. Uh, with Patrick McDonald doing a gig in St John's Theatre, lo- lovely gig, and then we're in the Dunhamays on Saturday night in Port Leash, uh, uh, and uh, well, coming up on the eleventh of October, we'll be in the Arts Centre in Mullingar, and on the twelfth of October, we'll be in the Riverbank Theatre in Newbridge so look out for that the show is really going great the stand up music and the sketches uh, just getting better and better every time we do it so uh, if I was you now I'd be be going to that bleeding show so it was my birthday uh, two days ago Uh, I was uh, a year older than I was the day before and uh, went out for a little dinner with my two offspring, my son and my daughter and then I went to uh, see my son's band playing in the Ruby the Ruby Sessions in Daly's Pub just beside the back of the side of Trinity College uh, the Ruby Sessions, uh, never been to it before, it was packed upstairs and it's a kind of a unplugged-ish well I definitely peeled back versions of a, of of bands being you know doing their songs in a, a more kind of a not necessarily acoustic because uh, certainly electricity is involved but uh, definitely peeled back versions of their songs and uh, Danny's band uh, Modern Love played along with a few other people uh, Moncrief Luz L-U-Z and and uh, some other fella, and uh, uh, it was great to see them. And very, they were very good, very good. I thought they were bread. They were really good. So that was my birthday treat. Just going to see my own son's band. <laughs> but um, and uh, what I've been up to in the last? I've joined the gym there two weeks ago, so I've been going now on a regular basis, doing doing CrossFit and stretchy classes, and uh, feeling feeling I better for it i'll tell you that i can't be running at the moment i still have a sore right calf just in case you're, you haven't seen me out running around ireland or if you're abroad 
so uh, just uh, you haven't seen videos of it. Just just uh, just to explain that you know. So it might be out later in the week uh, once me the tendon in me calf uh heals i don't know what's happened to me tendons these days does anyone know does your tendons get old uh get old will they get old do they get less stretchy or something i've also got this elbow thing i don't know is this age related where my elbow if i can't just lean on my elbow it's incredibly sore is that is that something to do with getting older do you get more sensitive elbows? Do you get less spongy elbows? Your, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's not something that I'm not... My elbow's fine just in general, but every now and then it just... I touch it off something like... And it's like, ooh, that is sore. Ooh, sore elbows. Sore one elbow. Just one elbow. My right elbow. Uh, so I've been trying to do weights as well. Uh, not something I've done much of. And let me think, let me tell you that my uh, my difference, the difference between the right and left. First of all, I've got the, I've got SpongeBob SquarePants arms. I mean, uh, not, you know, upper body strength wouldn't be one of my strong points. But, uh, but the difference between left and right, I mean, my left arm can do very little. I don't even know why. What's the point in having it? It could barely lift a liter of milk. It's and then my right arm's huge, it's like Popeye. It's unbelievable. So uh, why is why do people have like why did nature make you right-handed and left-handed or left-handed? And right? Why why not have both arms? Why does nature? Say, yeah, yo, just one arm will be really good and the other one will be shit. Is that good? I th- I was just thinking, why not have both arms good at things? Or is that just confusing? Maybe that's confusing. Maybe when you're about to be, you know, when you're uh, millions of years ago and you were being attacked by a lion or something uh, uh, and uh, you had a spear, but you had a spear... Uh, and maybe people who were ambidextrous just couldn't make up their mind which arm to throw the spear with and they got killed whereas the people who had just one arm going well only with one arm that well, that's any good so you throw it with that arm they lived maybe yeah maybe evolution just weeded out people who were good at both arms and legs and stuff like that um yeah, that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. So, uh, yeah, so this is Mike Farr, and uh, do do uh, remember to uh, check out my gigs on my website, www.joerooney, www, how many W, three W's anyway, dot, joerooneycomedian.com, all my gigs be there, and all my Twitter is joerooney1, and I'm uh, tweeting away there like good out uh, and uh, this is a great uh, chat with Mike so enjoy it just come back from the west of Ireland, yeah? I did. I came back from your neck of the woods in Chum. That's right. That's where I was born, yeah. So that's where your that's where your family They are, yeah. They are. It's a it's a home of uh of some very dry humorous people there. And uh I had some pub culture there and uh it was it was grand. It was just great. Yeah. Uh, so your mother or father are from Chum or both? My m- or uh, father area, is from uh, Chum, Athen Rye area, mm. and my mom's from uh, Limerick. Oh, like right. Valley Landers on the way down to, to Cork. Okay. Yeah. And you were born in? I was born in the States, in New the States. Jersey. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. All right, so uh, growing up in New Jersey, did you have like a very Irish upbringing, would you say? Or? I did, yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> it was a great, great upbringing in that. First of all, I was in a very Irish neighborhood in Jersey City, yeah, which was Irish enough. But then, God bless my parents, they would just work overtime and 
diner tips and waitressing tips and they'd scrounge the money to get us to Ireland every other year oh, yeah. to see my grandparents. So we'd spend weeks at a time on the farms and, and it was really fantastic, you know. So there wasn't a lot of money in the house and whatever money we had we we were always on an Aer Lingus flight going to JFK yeah. and So you were growing up in New Jersey and like then in the summertime you'd get what, two weeks or get three four or five weeks. It, on Sometimes. a farm. On a farm, yeah. That must have been such an unbelievable difference. It was, from especially that. from your, you know, kind of in an inner city, right? Yeah. Uh, and years later, this was the best compliment I ever got in one of my books. Uh, this is your brain on shamrocks. Yeah. I got an inter- a review from the Chum Herald, yeah. and the interviewer said he's Irish, Irish American, but not quite. Meaning that I knew enough about how Ireland really was. Yeah. That even though I was Irish American, that I I could, I knew it wasn't just that that quiet man stuff. I yeah. I I'd lived there enough, or I spent summers on the farm enough yeah. that I really knew what was going on. Yeah, you know, and the calving and all that other fun stuff. So it was yeah. just amazing to have this city upbringing, and then the summers you'd spend there right. was like paradise. Yeah, because I uh, I was at the opposite end. So I was I grew up on a farm in Ireland and we we would have uh, cousins coming over from England yeah. uh, every summer or so and they were they would just go insane. They they just couldn't believe this freedom and Yeah. To and us then, it was normal but And then know. how did you feel about them? Were they like Well, I felt glamorous they, or yes, were they yes. you know, like all the Oh yeah. Oh, to me, they were like, oh, my God, I'd love to live in a city in England. And, I mean, all as far as I was concerned, they were probably – they probably would see David Bowie walking around the streets or something. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they were friends with them, mates with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but they, yeah, so I was at the opposite end. Um, so, uh, what, would you be involved in the Irish culture? Would, it, would Irish dancing would have been part or – that kind of well, I don't know if or... your your listeners or yourself would know the Irish Catskills. Uh, so there was a place. Have you ever heard of the Irish Catskills? No. So your Irish Catskills are up the New York Thruway a little bit, about two hours from New York City. And mm. these would be these. They'd be basically tents, and they'd be barely tents. They'd be these little hotel motels or whatever, mm. and you'd have a strip of them. It was in New Durham, New York, and they're still there. They have an Irish, great Irish culture there, but it was kind of like the Irish Alps, they would call them. Mm-hmm. And you'd have, you know, the Clancy brothers and other people that would come up and they'd play uh, those kinds of, of gigs. And I would often, we would often go up there when we couldn't afford the, the year we couldn't go to Ireland, we'd usually go up to the Catskills. Mm-hmm. So the Jersey City, Bayonne, New Jersey, Yonkers, mm. uh, in the, a in lot the of those different Irish neighborhoods, you'd find people that uh, they really kept the culture alive. And, you know, they mm. it's often said that sometimes they knew more about the Irish culture than the Irish that stayed because they were always pulling it into them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So there was always a pull of you'd get the Hal Roach records and we passed them around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd get the Clancy Brothers stuff. You'd pat, like whoever came back from Ireland, they would always have these records under their arms, and you and you'd just soak them up. You know, mm. you knew every Clancy Brothers song. You knew that that Hal Roach comedy album. Write it down. You remember that? <laughs> Write it down. It's a good one. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that you kept it really alive there as well. And you would see. It's kind of strange because. Growing up as a young fella in Ireland, we rebelled against that culture. We thought it was old-fashioned. You know, we wanted we wanted to listen to modern music, you know. And it's, we did as well. It's, it's interesting yeah. you say that because, you know, we were... I hated the Clancy Brothers for the longest time because it was your yeah. father's music. And, of course, you know, we were the same age. Yeah. Whatever your father was listening to was the worst thing ever. Yeah. And then I re- remember specifically when the Pogues came out. Yeah. And when Black 47 came out. And this would be probably the mid-80s kind of thing. Mm. And when it was this fusion of traditional music and punk rock, it fed you back your culture into a language you understood. Totally I think it was, it was the magic of the Pogues because I hated the diddly diddly. Yeah. And then I loved the Pogues. And then the Pogues almost were translators back 
to the Sean Nuss singing and the Clancy Brothers yeah. and everything that came before it. It did. It did actually make you. I think it did you, it for a whole generation it, of people. Yeah. It made yeah. it cool again. Oh, absolutely. It totally, totally did. And you realized actually from listening to folks that, yeah, that music war is in you. Do you know what I mean? It is. Uh, it is. Even if you tried to. Yeah, and the, and the Black 47, the Black 47 music, they would have an American spin on it. So they mixed mm. hip hop and reggae mm-hmm. and they hit all these New York sounds and then they had a Yulean pipe mm. and they'd have the Irish melodies and there's yeah. this one out song called It's Time to Go. Right. And you could just YouTube it and it really was just hip hop. It was just all those Irish elements plus New York elements. Yeah. And that was another song. I heard that song and it fed my culture back to me and then I was very thirsty to see what came back. Yeah. Before that. It was almost like the Rolling Stones, right? You know, when you I was really big into the Rolling Stones and then and the, when you love the Rolling Stones, you then have to go back to Chuck Berry the bl- and the blues. And the blues. Yeah. And you find yeah. out what inspired them. Yeah. So I think the Pogues did that for me and I know they did that. Black 47 did that for me and a generation of people as well. I uh, I and absolutely and then you realize as well that the Dubliners when they came out, they were like the Pogues. They were considered fairly rough and ready yeah. by the elitist kind of right. like guardians of the culture right know? right yeah. yeah so and then years later it was interesting because i you know i've written for the irish voice for 18 years and that's the irish american newspaper uh-huh. and uh my page would be the irish rock stuff right but then the next page was the guy paul Keaty. he did the trad right and you know never the twain shall meet you know there's a lot of people that think the traditional music is very purist yeah and the Black 47 stuff when you're putting hip-hop and the fiddles and the flutes and the mm-hmm. laying pipes next to hip-hop beats. I mean, that's just sacrilege, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and like, the acoustic guitar was sacrilege. It was. Bringing the acoustic guitar into Irish music. It was, you know. Yeah. And now it's interesting. Our friend Ronan turned us on to this, but yeah. I love now, years later, for all the talk about all the Polish immigrants and everything else that are coming into Ireland... It's bleeding out in the music. You know, Balian Salsa, that that band out of Galway, has a lot of the Brazilian and Portuguese influences yeah. and mixing it with the Irish trad players. Yeah. And it's just making a kind of music you've never heard before. And I no. think that, that's super exciting. Yeah, yeah. And that's I think that's what keeps the music alive. Yeah. I mean, it's what brought... Uh, um, it was... Fellas coming back from America with uh, banjos and things that changed the trad music here. Yeah, as well. for sure. Yeah, and, you're uh, right, though. Acoustic uh, musics were uh, acoustic guitars are sacrilege. Banjos were not. Uh, and it's just a matter of a couple of more strings when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, why, yeah. Would you, why would you die on that hill? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's just two more strings. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so uh, then, um, you, so you grew up in New Jersey, right? Did you, what, what is it, like, I, we were talking about, uh, you wrote a, uh, sick, what would you call it, a thing called McLean Avenue, would you call it a drama, a, a comedy drama, I suppose? Well, if we roll the tape back, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, the whole thing around McLean Avenue and the culture, which we started to talk mm-hmm. about, really came from, uh, years later, uh, after, you know, being in my 30s or so, I... I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Irish Voice. And right. again, that's the Irish-American newspaper uh, that's very popular in New York and some of the bigger cities where Irish mm. people are. And I was able to write the music column for 18 years. Yeah. And that served two purposes leading up to McLean Avenue. The first one is if you have a weekly column to write, it gives you the writing discipline mm. where you're writing something every day because you have a column due at the end of the week. Yeah. That's the first thing it gave me. And then the second thing it gave me is it gave me this perspective because I went behind the scenes of all these uh, musicians and I'd be, in the, I'd be in the audience listening to them and then I'd go backstage. And, you know, that being a fan but then having that backstage access for 18 years really gave an interesting perspective. So mm. uh, McLean Avenue is an example, which is a, a, a street in Yonkers, Mm. is heavily populated by Irish immigrants. And these would be the, these would be the firefighters, these would be the, the nannies, still today, 
just working class people. And I would often go into McLean Avenue and review bands like Moya Brennan from Clannad played at Rory Dolan's. Mm. I'd come see all of those acts and I'd review Mm. them. And you just have this working class humor that I never saw really properly portrayed. Yeah. So to write the McLean Avenue, I suppose I'm not the only writer that's ever done this. You start to write just because you've never seen yourself on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. and then just funny people and 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 you hear all these stories or I'd see these things with my own two eyes like the uh the tenor singers, you know, they would sing Ave Maria and how great they are, thou art and yeah. They'd be singing all these hymns, and then as soon as they put down the mics, they'd be out in the bar trying to hit on everything that walked. (laughs) You know what I mean? So there was those kinds of things that I found were funny, you know, like these angelic uh, people that were singing these these hymns and the red-haired Mary and the Danny boy and... Yeah. And they just go to the bar and try to hit on anything that moved. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, there's comedy there. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So yeah. that's that was the premise of some of the characters on McLean Avenue. Right. Uh, but before you wrote, wrote Mac- McLean Avenue, you'd written a few books. I'd written a few books, Sorry, yes. So have my a books, drink of your pint there. I don't want to drink of the pint there. I don't, don't want to interrupt po- you. Jay, is this podcast and thirsty work? <laughs> I'll have a drink as well. Have one. Pause now. Uh, while I'm talking, you can have your pint. <laughs> so I... From the weekly discipline of the Irish voice, I started to write some stories. And it actually started from my Irish voice column because, you know, in October, Irish music, there's not a lot to write about. Everybody's your best friend in St. Patrick's Day week, mm. but there's not a lot to write about in November, you know, November. So I asked my editor, I said, you know, I was telling these funny stories in the bar about growing up Irish and Catholic and guilty in mm. New Jersey. I said, do you think I might try to write a half a page just to just mm. to fill up a page like, you know. Mm. So the editor said, yeah, I did. And then I wrote these stories, and they really took off. And the books are called This Is Your Brain on Shamrocks. And what This Is Your Brain on Shamrocks is, is it's that Irish Catholic guilt. Like, we all have that little voice inside our head that's mm. our conscience. But Irish people, it's your mammy. So, you know, as an example, if I was hungover and I'd be not going to, mass on a sunday morning my mom would knock on the door and say well it's time to go to mass like and i'd mm. say you know mass is not going to happen mom i'm hungover and my mom would say well you know i'm sure the lord jesus christ didn't want to get up the day he died for your sins i'm sure he you know instead of bleeding to death on that cross he would have wanted to be doing the crossword puzzles on the new york times like do you know what i mean mm. but you stay in bed no, go ahead so it's just all those kinds of funny stories about how you were raised. Mm. I tell them in the bar, and then I would write them. And I was really over. We were all were in, in the newsroom. We were all overwhelmed by the response. People said, "You're writing about my life," and mm. and that kind of thing. You know, get out of my head. You're in my head. That my mother did the same thing. Yeah. So I was kind of onto something. And then as a writer, to shift away from uh, writing music columns I, I became very interested in making people laugh in the written word so it'd be one thing if i if i could tell you a story over a pint and i'd make you laugh just you and me here mm. but if you could actually write it and have somebody that doesn't know you or doesn't know your mother yeah be laughing that was something that was very interesting to me and i was gratified mm. to get the letters and the emails from the readers saying this is hilarious and and it gave me the co- confidence in yeah. that weekly column to start writing more of these stories down. They led to one-act plays in New York, mm-hmm. and then that led to the McLean Avenue writing. So it was a really – never did I think some of those bar stories would be – Yeah. Make it as far as they have so far. So let's t- talk about McLean Avenue. To describe what it is then. So McLean Avenue is a story, as I said. I, I had the bird's-eye view of the music uh, scene – that would be the story is about a down and out Irish American tenor mm. that might have got it in a bit grabby with his hands on the road in this Me Too era. He loses his high paying gig as an Irish tenor. He has to move back in with his Irish mother. And uh, the Irish mother is just starting to come up with a sex- sexual reawakening after being widowed. So they 
mother and son start to bump into one another in the singles bar scene <laughs> along McLean Avenue. And of course, the sand, the meat in that sandwich is a, is a certain Father Frank played by none other than yourself. Did a brilliant job. So Thank you. the the priest, the priest is actually the meat in the sandwich of the two of them. So mm. on one side of the coin, as you know, the priest was encouraging the the mom to go out there and live a little, and then yeah. at the same time, he's counseling the son to calm it down a little. And then as the series goes and on... And he's also a priest who's had lived a bit before he became he's a priest. He's lived, uh, lived a bit. He's, so, he's lived a bit. So he, ha- he has knowledge of what might have gone on. Yeah, so he, he kind of <laughs> came a priest a little later in life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he knows, he knows what's going on for sure. And he would have gone on the road with his cousin, the tenor. Yeah. So he saw some of that backstage stuff. So I thought that was an interesting trio of the m- mother just coming back on the dating scene and... And the priest helps her write the Match.com profile and the dating profile. Mm. And then he goes to the bar that, that afternoon and he tells the son, you really got to calm it down. You know, you just you just have to keep it in your pants and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I thought that was a funny comedic license or a comedic uh, device, I should say, to kind of explore characters. and Yeah, so it's a bit more gritty than your average kind of... Uh Irish type of drama, comedy drama, isn't it? So it's a bit more. It is. It is. Yeah. And you know, I would have, I would have been really into Roddy Doyle, the snapper, the commitments. Mm. Um, I love that. I also love Brendan O'Carroll, this, the Mrs. Mm-hmm. Brown's boys. And I worship that stuff. I mean, it was really great. Um, so I would take the Irish sensibilities of that, and then you know New York is kind of tough and gritty, and yeah, and I would, oh, I would add that in as well, where yeah. it'd be a bit more, it'd be a bit more gritty. I, I go into these, I go into these pubs where, you know, you really want to have, you'd have thick skin going to that pub. People mm-hmm. would just take the piss out of you, kind of thing, and adding that to it as well, that New York grittiness, was, yeah, was something I was interested in as well. Yeah, so it's really good. We, sh- we shot it in Kansas City, of all places. <laughs> we shot it in Kansas City over a whirlwind weekend, and everybody learned their lines, and it was great. Uh, so we did that last year. And then this year, after some editing and some fits and starts trying to find money to finish the project off, mm. uh, we actually took it to the Irish Art Center in New York earlier this year. We took it to a couple of places in New York, as well as Monmouth University, where I went to school mm. in New Jersey, and really got a fantastic response. To just to sit back and watch the audience watch it was something uh, top five experiences of my life. Mm. And it really reaffirmed that this was something that had an audience or they could have, could have an audience. Mm. So it's kind of inspired and. and kept the wind in our sails to keep this going and try to find it a home. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of interesting that uh, America, the American-Irish and, and uh, religion and ha- and what's happening in Ireland, did you look at Ireland as being, it's, we're always gone progressive and liberal here. Does, is, is that how Irish-Americans look at Ireland now and go, we've lost our faith, or uh, I, uh, you know, I it's, don't know, it's interesting, and that's a very interesting question. Mm. There are some, there are some very, very conservative Irish people mm. who I feel have sometimes forgotten where they came from. Do you know what I mean? So they would have, as an example gone out and you know their their parents and their grandparents came over here but yet they want to pull the ladder up behind themselves oh, yeah. and talking about the immigrant crisis and that is all now. immigrant communities mexican it is, it is. It indian is. they want to they don't want any more of even their own people exactly <laughs> exactly you know i i have uh yeah. there's people in my own family and they're talking about the damn immigrants and i'm thinking you were staying in my house illegally in the 80s do you, do you not remember you know what mm. i mean so you definitely have that element of it, and uh, 
I, I think I think it's a very valid question that there is, I think, especially if the Irish people from Ireland have been away for a while, they they freeze Ireland in time. Mm. And they're not really in tune with the fact that there's a gay tea shock. I mean, they know about it, but you know what I mean? Mm. They they would look at something like that and they'd say, How? I don't understand that because they're, they're still frozen in time with when they left. Mm. And they would, they would not react well to that. Mm. And yet at the same time, I mean, especially in a place like the Irish Voice, which would be a bit more of a liberal-leaning paper, mm. they celebrate the fact that, you know, all of these different the gay rights that are now Ireland's at the forefront of that and I, I think they'd be very they'd be very very applaud they'd applaud the that. south of Ireland by the way because they're uh, Northern Ireland is still isn't in the south of Ireland yeah in gay yeah. marriage but I think it's very similar mm. to just how things mm. are now in the world period which is you know it's 50-50 that love Trump and 50-50 that don't like Trump mm. So there'd be just as many people that would celebrate the fact that Ireland's being so progressive. There'd be just as many people saying they wish you put the genie back in the bottle and have it be the There's way it probably was. quite a few are um, people who feel their voice isn't being heard in Ireland who are are the very conservative people. But uh, but the, there's part of me that wants to keep a lot of things because. We don't have Good Friday was a day when all the pubs were closed in Ireland, and that's gone now. And I think that's wrong. I think we should keep those parts of our culture and go. I mean, for Christ's sake, could we not spend one day without the pubs being open? To no, go, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we do that? <laughs> well, I think that always goes to another thing as well, which is yeah. not. It's not so much the Irish culture that's changed, but it's also the the tight grip that the Catholic Church had on yeah. on your on the Irish culture specifically. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're just not seeing that as much. You know, back even when I was coming over here in the 70s, you'd really have uh, the Irish, the the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church had such a stronghold on the politics, on, mm. on everything, and they don't have that now. So I think that it's not only the Irish culture, but it's the grip the Catholic Church has on the Irish culture. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think Irish culture is dying in any sense. I do do think it's it's the grip of the Catholic. Yeah, no, look at Gaelic football; it's thriving. Yeah, yeah. um, Music and 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 as I, you know, as I said, I started out the podcast talking about the fact that I was in rural west of Ireland, and I was at uh, Mannion's Pub in. Abinac Moy, which is outside of Galway, and there were just these simple farming farming community that's there. Mm. Simple in lifestyle, but not in their mind. They're very mm. intelligent people and very talented people. And I was there anyway, and there was just this sing song, and you'd hear the most beautiful voices mm. of these old Irish songs, Black as the Color and Red Haired Mary and Gaelic songs, and I'll tell you, it was just, it was, that right there was the most earthy connection to Irish culture I'd had in quite a while. It was yeah. beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I loved that part of Ireland. Um, but I also think, like, all the uh, the uh, Virgin Marys all over the country, I, I'd, I'd like to keep them. The well, statues. you know what you'd also want to keep as well. <laughs> here's here's what you want to keep. I don't know if, if this was the case with all the houses I went into, but every house in my family, when I come over in the 70s and 80s, they had that same painting. It was JFK, mm. Pope Paul, and Pope Pius VI, and yeah. Jesus shaking hands. They're all like, <laughs> yeah. do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the cover of the the uh, first Pogues album, I think, they're, sta- they're sitting in front of a- JFK and the Pope. And JFK that, and the Pope. And, and when and you Pope looked at that, you went, oh, that's totally it. Oh, like. yeah. But that was in every house. It was JFK and the Pope shaking yeah. hands or something. Yeah. 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 So, it, was, it was interesting. Well, that's from, uh, you know, I, and this, the other thing. You know the Angelus that we have here? At, at 6 o'clock. At yeah. 6 o'clock. Oh, God, I hope we keep that. I mean, that's brilliant. I it just, is. I it is. It's no, amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as much yeah. as, you know, as much as you might move away from 
from church teaching and you might have your own opinions of it. You know, it's when somebody passes away or somebody gets married and the priest comes back and yeah. and brings the family together in those times, you really there's a part of you that never leaves that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do well, you know what for I mean? the the big moments in your life, you yeah. do need something. You need it something. Does, it, there's a, some faith for the births, the deaths, the marriages, and and the coming of age. Yeah, yeah. So bringing it back to the show because that's what we're here to sell. <laughs> 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 but I I think you know all that whole. But what launch, what, let's talking about your show. You see, the thing is that it's it's got that uh, uh, the religion is in the show, and yet the total. Um, uh, you know this this kind of gritty kind of uh, not taking religion too seriously kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think again with the the mother character on the show, she would have grieved. She would have been in the middle of grief, and she would have turned to the church. She would have gotten involved in the Rosary Society and mm. all those things, and she just would have been one of those church ladies. And you being the cousin, the priest, mm. is trying to intersect that. So at one point, there's a line in the show that you say, listen, we appreciate everything you do in the church for us, but couldn't you just live a little, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, she's guided by the church. And my mother, who's still alive, is very much guided by the church. Uh, she's mm. also the president of the Rosary Society and the, the whole line yard. So the, the church is not only... A place of worship it's also her social scene you know they're, they're mm. doing bake sales and bus trips and yeah her mother and father god bless them go to all of them yeah and then you have the the character sean who's the son that would kind of be rolling his eyes on that and you know he knew your character when you were a roadie for him on the road and he still can't mm. believe you're a priest yes yeah. he would say things you'd never say to a priest but he thinks you're the cousin so I thought that was an interesting piece as well. It's 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 speaking of the different generations, how they view the the Catholic their faith, really. Yeah, and see, I always thought from growing up in Ireland, we I always thought in Ireland we took uh, religion very seriously compared to other European Catholic countries. I always thought maybe in Italy they go, yeah, but you know, yeah, but still the priest has a girlfriend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Here, that would be like, oh, my, no, that that couldn't happen. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because uh, I have an aunt who shall remain nameless mm. that was calling around the house, the houses. She didn't know exactly where I was staying this weekend, mm. but she wanted to call around the houses to confirm that I went to Mass. Really? <laughs> and she's driving around in her white van like a Garda. <laughs> We're like hide <laughs> you know right, yeah. so you know there's still there's still a lot of that in my family still my mother would say mm. do you go to mass and what did the priest say and you get the third riot act and i'm like i'm 53 years old <laughs> yeah did you go to a catholic school i did yeah i went to catholic yeah. grammar school and i went to catholic high school and mm. definitely had uh had that in in my past as well mm -hmm. and so um and i would also say you know that uh, the the church sex abuse scandal is something that came to our door and mm -hmm. with me. Uh, so there's part of me that personally uh, was yeah, personally, yeah. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did. So it was, yeah. uh, you know, he kind of took he took me away for the weekend, and he would kind of uh, he would say to my my mom and dad, oh, I, we see, I see something in him. And, of course, for somebody that was a woman of faith, mm. if a man of the collar would see something in you, they would... That would be like... It's like amazing. Jesus yeah. just anointed you. Yeah, you know? so, yeah. And it, you came out later, a little later on that that was kind of the modus operandi of, of these pedophiles. They mm. were the ones with the collar they were beyond reproach you know because nobody had ever questioned them yeah so uh that was actually you know definitely something that i dealt with my teens and that was my first book was called collared and it's a suspense novel set in the sex abuse scandals of the church and it was kind of my way of working my way through mm. that mm. and um when i wrote the book the first copy of the book I gave to my mom and my dad, I took him out to lunch and I said, 
I have good news and I have bad news. I said, the good news is that you're not in the book. And my mm. mom said, what book? And I said, the bad news is there's a book. Mm. This is what it's about. This is what was inspired by. Mm. And my mom and dad never knew any of that. Mm. And then the second book, I went and I had dinner with that religious brother from my high school. And I dropped the book on his lap. And I said, I wasn't cool with what you did. And I used the book to kind of get everything I had out of my system, all the anger and all that other fun stuff. So it gave me the courage to really approach him mm. and drop the book on his lap, said I wasn't cool with it. And then that book ran around my high school and it eventually got him thrown out of the religious order and prosecuted. So wow. uh, that was another element of, well, that, that started my writing career, really. The first book was just a matter of tr me trying to get straight or complete with what had happened. And then that paved the way to just write funny books from there, mm. you know. So it was an interesting <laughs> – I know this is a real serious portion of the podcast at the moment, but, yeah. you know, the, but This Is was... Your Brain on Shamrock's books were funny, but it, I really had to throw up a lot of uh, ugly little hairballs to kind of yeah. get to the comedic place, if that makes sense. And that was like your therapy, was it? Was it writing? It, those I never books? went to therapy for no. it. It was just writing it out, and I wrote a, uh, I wrote a, a fictional premise about it, and yeah. that's what allowed me to get complete. Yeah, and just and yeah. just get the book, get the book in front of him to tell him I wasn't okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you, if he came in the if he came in the the hotel now, I'd buy him a drink. I'm, yeah. I'm that I'm that flat with it. That's pretty amazing mm. that you could get that uh, at peace with it. Yeah. Uh. I am. I am at peace with it. Although I would say there's still a part of me that I'm angry for my parents because my parents were very just God-fearing good people that didn't deserve they – got, they got abused yeah. just as bad as I did. It was an abuse of trust of a parent. Yeah. So I don't think they talk enough about that. You know, there's, I mean, God bless the, God bless the sexual abuse, uh, the SNAP and the other sexual abuse survivors network of sexual abuse that are out there. They really put the abuse victims plights on front and center, but not enough is said about the parents and the guilt and the, you know, just you trusted these people and, and your trust got betrayed in the worst way. And most of these people were the church ladies and the janitors of the school. And, you know, my mom ran up and did the bingos and everything else like that. And just those good working class mm. Western European Catholic immigrant families did not deserve that. Mm. They just didn't, you know, and it was so... I I spent years really rebelling against the Catholic, my Catholic faith. And over the years, I forgave the guy that did it. I forgave the church. I forgave God. And then I finally forgave myself um, over the years. So that all goes into the show as well. I mean, it's not dark like that, but, you know, that... that uh, irreverent take on humor of the church would have mm. probably come from a little bit of yeah a middle finger well you need to <laughs> well, look every not just the church but any the government democracy everybody needs they can't you know they need to be able to be criticized and to be yeah uh, that's what is kind of uh annoying that's what's happening at the moment that if you criticize well, I see in America, if you criticize uh, Trump, you're considered it's unpatriotic. Yeah. Like, that's his comeback. But, you know, it's interesting. You know I, mean? I don't know if you were actually there on the set when this happened. Can you just hold that? Sorry. I, I don't know if you were there on the set when this happened, but um, Frank the – you know, you were, of course, because he did this to you. Mm. But Frank the bartender, at one point, when he was serving you the seltzers, and 
you said, I, I don't drink, I'll just have a seltzer. And he threw his middle finger up at you in one of those takes. Mm. And it hit cut. And I said, I don't want that in there. And he said, but I think it really adds something to it. I said, that is not going to be on there. Because even though you were wearing a fake collar, mm. I, I would respect the collar. Right, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. would respect the collar... Even though you're playing a fake priest, I'd respect the collar of the church. I wouldn't want somebody to throw a middle finger at a priest in a show I was producing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I remember that, but that, that, yeah, that's a bit odd that that would. That would um, I, I could remember my character. It would be horrible. To, it'd be horrible to him. He's yeah, a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a be, nice guy, be, right? Yeah, but it was <laughs> that was an interesting moment in the in the yeah. in the show. I just thought about that now as we're thinking about yeah. it. But but I think it speaks to the fact that you know, despite the con- despite the the complicated relationship I would have with the church, or many of us do. It's yeah. just not me. There'd still be things where you'd want the reverence of the priest collar, even though they didn't always deserve it. Hmm. And you'd always you wouldn't want anything anything sacrilegious said about the Blessed Mother. Or yeah, right. Anything like that, you wouldn't. But but that the role of comedy. You, there's uh, a line. You, there's a filter or a line you wouldn't cross. Right, right, right. As right. a Catholic. Okay. Maybe but, you would. <laughs> I don't uh, know. <laughs> I, no, I don't know. I don't want to offend people. I do a little bit about Jesus being passive aggressive, and the whole of Christianity based on a very passive aggressive act because just being crucified and going it's your fault <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah if you you know if you weren't fornicating this wouldn't have happened yeah. to me <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> uh, and uh, and I just say about the Roman soldiers feeling bad or whatever anyway but if there was I remember I did a little gig a gig in Cork in this tiny village uh, it's so small that I say everybody in the village was at the gig right and there's this lady I was having a banter with and then I got into that bit and she was kind of obviously uncomfortable and I just dropped it then because mm. I don't want to be like making someone who's obviously believe their religion is very strong for them I don't want to be making them feel uncomfortable or you know, um, would you say this is an interesting thing, though? I've noticed, especially with the proliferation of Netflix comedy specials, hmm. it seems like it's the comedian nowadays that you're almost relying on them to be a comedian could say something as a joke that many people couldn't say, yeah, or many people couldn't write. You know, Dave Chappelle just has a brand new special out, and He's talking about, you know, Michael Jackson and the pedophile and the abuse thing. And Mm. he wraps it up in comedy, but it's also social commentary that I find that comedians are really more vital than ever now in this day and age. And I think it's comedians like yourself and other people that are continually, there's a political correctness that you're the last heat shield against. Would you say that as well? Because even now with yourself, if you're... You're kind of up there on the stage, and you're questioning, "Oh, Jesus, am I am I crossing a line here?" It's really the comedians that are, I find, are the place where the, you can push the boundary of a political correctness further than most of us. I'm not sure because comedy has got very politically correct in 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 Ireland and the UK as well. Whereas a lot of um, uh, people doing confessional. Uh, comedy, so they do their. So you go to Edinburgh and they do their show, but in the middle of the show they have to go. Well, I actually have suffered from such and such, and I, I actually find that a bit. I don't really agree with that. Uh, I think comedy is comedy. Uh, it's there's a person that you are off stage and a person you are on stage. And I don't think you have to show all your failings. On stage, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, it's not, it's comedy. You're a, you, it's an, it's an act to a certain. What well, would you extent. say that you're also came up as a comic act, uh, like a character actor? I would say. So, do you find that when you're up there now? I mean, obviously, you're drawn from your own life for your comedy, but do you find yourself 
what's the word? Do you find yourself uh, a ca- more of a character comedian? No, no, I do. Uh, versus a confessional. No, no. Well, I'm not confessional, but I'm not a character. I do characters as well. And I do, well, say I would slip in and out of characters. There's a little song I do where uh, called Bring Back the El Potato. <laughs> well, I remember the Kansas City, uh, uh, I saw you in Kansas City and... I see you, you bring a lot of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music comedy in as well. I do, yeah, yeah. So there's one bit where I, I, I do a parody of an Irish, of a song about old Ireland. And then I go, and I go, when there was one type of everything like bread and cheese and tea, and no one was transgender, lesbian, or straight or gay. <laughs> now, that's obviously yeah. not how I feel. Yeah, yeah. But I think some people are so damn stupid these days, they just can't even take that on board that um you're parried doing a parody of someone yeah it's that's how ridiculous things are i think these days you know so again Uh, not to bring it back to david labelle uh, dave Chappelle, but uh he had a great line in his the first line he did i'm not going to say what it was was really raw his first Mm -hmm. comedy and everybody was like oh and his line was bitch you're the one that clicked on my face on netflix (laughs) (laughs) like what were you expecting yeah but you know what i mean like i i do believe you know i do believe that that comedians you're you're the ones that are pushing the line now because now it's get it's very divisive and it's very um it is very politically correct so i think again i think i think the role of a comedian is vital or comedy writing is vital and Mm. There's there's things now like Big Mouth, the, the the that cartoon. There's a lot of really edgy comedy out there, and I think yeah, look, I do yeah, because there isn't uh, there isn't any protest music anymore. There aren't protest no, songs. There's, there's, there's no one like Bob nope. Dylan or. Yeah. And even when you know, so. I, I'm thinking about the Dixie Chicks because they have an album coming out. But even mm. didn't they just really plummet when they started to get political around the Bush? They did, yeah. When they they were they criticized the Iraq War, didn't they? They did that song, "Mad as Hell." Remember that, "Mad as Hell." They did, and they lost, you know, country music, which is a very conservative, Mm. you know, middle of the country kind of thing. Country radio would have turned their back on them and Mm. everything else like that. So, I think people, I know bands like Black Forty Seven. He wrote an album. uh, Larry Kerwin wrote an album called Iraq, and a lot of the Irish festivals dropped him. You know, so they definitely hit you in the wallet if you get protesting nowadays. So, again, I think I think uh, comedy shows, comedy writing, comedy specials. I think that's a, pl- a great place to keep mm. free speech alive and and have have something to make you laugh, but make you think and and repel you and. Make you laugh at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it's probably a good way of getting the getting the, getting that stuff that you can't get in. While they're laughing, you can hit them with some reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, so let's uh, we let's go back to McLean Avenue. So at this point well, that's now, why we're here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, I mean, it is a comedy, by the way. <laughs> we're, we're not. We're, we're, I don't people know if we give the impression are, that people it's... people are ready to, you know, take a pack of sleeping pills after this <laughs> podcast. I hope you'll edit it out. We can me. edit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll listen back. I'm sure it's not that. But um, uh, so it's 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 a you've shown it around in uh, New York as well you've 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 screened it in New, New York, York Kansas City Kansas New Jersey City, New just Jersey. the east coast and then brought it back to the bar where we filmed it and brought yeah. it back to the Kansas City community there yeah. which by the way is an incredible Irish community I didn't I had no idea in Kansas City I mean yeah. you saw it yourself it's amazing yeah yeah they came out of the woodwork they closed down pubs for us and yeah oh they couldn't have been nicer I have family there now it's amazing yeah, uh, me too. Them, I consider them family, don't you? Uh, me too. Yeah, like when I go back to Kansas City now, I'm like one of the one of the You're community one of the guys. It's like a family. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, you've written also. You've written the whole series, haven't you? I wrote the whole series. Yeah. yeah. So you, you get into quite a few shenanigans there in, yeah. in episodes seven, eight, and nine, ten. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I have. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where. 
I'm doing it for a couple of reasons. The first one is that if somebody likes the first episode and they buy it, then the next question is going to be, well, what comes after this? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, you know, you have to have that belief that it's going to happen. So if it does happen, it's going to happen quick. And if it's going to happen mm -hmm. quick, you're going to have to have material for people to yeah. start chewing on, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that it's uh, it has – the first episode was pretty raw and kind of in your face. And it was very – you know, there's a couple of shock value things to it. But as the series goes on, there's a real character depth that I'm going for where you really fall in love with those characters, even mm -hmm. the ones that wouldn't be immediately likable. You know, so The Sopranos is a great example of writing where – the Sopranos would not be people you'd want to have living next to you. But yet, you yet, damn if you didn't care for them. Care for them, and yeah. damn if you didn't tune in every week to find out what happened to them. But yeah. if they were living next to you, you wouldn't want anything to do with them. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of those characters in, this, in the comedy series, and then a lot of likable ones, of course, as well. Mm. But uh, finding out what happens to them, and and you know, especially. For your character as the priest, the idea that a priest would be running around in a leather jacket would beg its own backstory. Like, well, he mm. doesn't – my priest doesn't wear a leather biker jacket, so mm. he was a rock and roll priest. What what did he do in the past? So as you go on in the later episodes, that reveals itself on how he got to be the way he is and, and maybe his conflict with celibacy and – all of that kind of gets revealed as well. Mm. And then there's a illusion, there's a hint that, you know, he said, I'm 28 years sober today in the pilot. And you kind of understand maybe what that road was like for him as you go on in a humorous way. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't wait. I can't wait <laughs> in a humorous <laughs> way. Yeah. So, and then, yeah. and then, and, you know, and then by the end of the season, it get we really ramp up. I mean, there's just some slapstick stuff that goes on in the last episode that's really funny. Mm -hmm. I would love to. I just want so bad to film it. You know, it's it's really funny. So yeah, yeah, it's gonna happen. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know, there's 46 million Irish Americans, and again, I find that, and I'm a fan of them. Don't get me wrong, but there's things like. Smilf, and there's things like, oh, that Bill Macy show. I can't think of it. William H. Macy show. Uh, but anyway, it's the typical Irish dysfunctional, drunk, addicted to drugs, whatever, mm -hmm. that it's an extreme Irish-American dysfunction that doesn't ring true for a lot of us, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we... I would never have done half the stuff you would have seen on some of those shows because I have an Irish Catholic mother that dive bombs me with guilt mm. and keeps me on a straight and narrow path, you know. So this would be more about these good, hardworking Irish. Uh, you know, my dad was a t my dad was worked in the tolls in the New Jersey Turnpike. My mom was a waitress. Uh, we went up to the Catskills. We listened to the Irish music and the Irish scene there. I would be going out to concerts in Rory Dolan's and McLean Avenue. Mm -hmm. I would be, I'd just be having good, clean fun, mm. getting naughty once in a while. That kind of slice of Irish Americana, I have not seen. I just haven't, and yeah. and I and I think there's 46 million people who haven't seen it either. Yeah, that's why I'm. I don't really lose sleep thinking this is not going to find an audience. Yeah, it's just a matter of how do you get it, how to get it out there. You know, what's right. the best vehicle? But I have zero. Maybe I'm deluding myself. I have zero. Uh, I I lose zero sleep. This is going to find an audience. I know mm. it will. Mm. It's going to find an audience. Amen. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right.
that was great, wasn't it? Good old Mike. We had a pint of Guinness while we were doing that. That's that's two in a row now that we've been drinking Guinness while we did our podcast. That won't be the case in next week's podcast um, because it was done over Skype. And you don't want to be drinking Guinness while you're Skyping. God knows what could happen. You could lose control of yourself and Skype into someone else. <laughs> but next week's uh, uh, podcast is uh, wonderful. It's uh, a chat with Shazia Mirza, who's a UK comedian. And believe it or not, she, uh, the morning that uh, we, ch- we chatted in the afternoon, that morning she'd been to... Uh, See, to meet the royal family, two of them anyway, William and Kate. Uh, so there you go. She tore herself away from the royal family to um, have a chat with me. You know, that's how important I am. Uh, Shazia Mertz, a very funny, very funny woman. That'll be a good one. Uh, so there you go. That that was Mike Farraher. And he's got a book called uh, Your Head on Shamrocks and... Uh, and this McLean Avenue. Hopefully, that series will be out in the near future, and uh, um, you'll see all that. Uh, but uh, check him out uh, online, and uh, he's got a few books, and and uh, he may be coming to a parish hall near you at some point. That's it for me uh, for this week's uh, podcast. Uh, thank you for listening, and. Uh, uh, yeah, just thanks. And uh, if you want to send me uh, an envelope full of cash, just uh, stick it in the post. Joe Rooney, Ireland. Right, see ya. Good luck. Bye. You fucking dirty fucking idiot. You dirty bunch of fucking bastards. Oh, Jesus. Lord bless us and save us. Listen, if you're still living with bladder accidents, stop. It's time to get your life back. I was just like you until I found real relief with Axonix Therapy. It's not a pill or a pad. It's a clinically proven advanced treatment. Get started at findrealrelief.com. That's findrealrelief.com. Consult a bladder specialist to find out if Axonix is right for you. Results and experiences may vary. For more information about safety and potential risks, go to findrealrelief.com.